Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, Simon Perrins returns to Derry and Tom's to pick up the second volume of The Adventures of the Prince in the Scarlet Robe. Yes, we're back with Coram and his ongoing battle against the sword rulers and his vile, mabbed and arch enemy, Glandith Akrae. As is usual for this podcast, we do go off piste a bit, I make a critical error in my beer choices, and we talk about Simon's new podcast. Well, I say new. When we recorded our Coram yakking, there were seven episodes, and now, at the time of recording this introduction, three more have dropped. Entertaining and prolific. As it happens, the beer error wasn't the only hiccup with this episode. Simon's voice recording went weird, and, to complement that, I recorded on the wrong microphone. One that was several feet away and positioned wrongly. So, I sounded like I was in a tin bath in the yard outside. I've done some EQing as best I can, but expect it to sound a bit crap. That said, if you're still here after all these episodes, you'll have experienced the sound issues of my amateurish recordings in Tash's kitchen, so it might not be as big an issue as I fear. Anyway, all that aside, I just want to thank Greg Faulkner for a delivery that put a smile on my face at a really opportune moment. And you can see what that was if you check out our Instagram feed. And also thank Dave, Miles and Andy for accommodating some scheduling changes to upcoming shows. Thanks gents, truly appreciated. Without further ado though, brush off your velvet breeks, select a suitable beverage and join Simon and I as we delve into The Queen of the Swords, Book One. We're back at Derry and Tom's and returning to Derry and Tom's for I think the third time now. It's only Simon Perrins. I think it might be the fourth. <gasps> oh my god. No, 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 yeah, you know, you're right. Yeah. Cut cut that out. Yeah, it is the third. <laughs> no, I'm not cutting nothing out. <laughs> you, because of course we did Mocock Art and Comics. Yeah. And we did two of those. And now you're back and this time we're actually going to cover well, not a whole Mocock book, because we'd get through Mocock far too quickly if we did that. And I, I want this to last at least 30 years. So <laughs> we're doing we're doing Queen of the Swords book one, which was your choice. But before we get on to that, since the last time we spoke, you've launched your own podcast. I have indeed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, first things first, libations. Now, because we're covering Queen of the Swords, and I've been sitting in one of my many gymnasia trying to decide <laughs> what, what what booze I should bring to, to a quorum party on a school night. So I had a route around the beer cupboard, and we don't have any plume wine or anything unusual like that. But what I did find was the closest thing I could find to plume wine, which is, uh, oh, shit... First thing I read on the label, alcohol-free. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to kick off with an alcohol-free <laughs> Northern Monk Mango Lassie Heathen Mango Lassie IPA. So basically, this is just going to be about £14 of sugar it's in pop. this can. <laughs> so what are, you, what are you hitting for this school uh, night quorum first? I've... Uh, found some Italian cider called Angioletti, uh, which I've never had before and didn't even know they had cider in Italy. But uh, mm. there you go. Just uh, It was just knocking around the uh, cupboard. 
yes. and just taste. I'm I, I'm not a connoisseur, so yeah. it just tastes like any old cider to me. But yeah. you know, cheers. Oh, just had it lying around some Italian craft cider. Uh, okay. It sounds it sounds it sounds smart, doesn't it? But it, it does. Just any old, you know. Yeah, at some well point we need to do a, a cider episode because we always um, we spent far too long doing ridiculous syrupy porters and stouts. Um, this is pouring out like it's a melted cider apple lolly. Um, in order to try and keep it outlandish, I'm also drinking it out of my Northern Monk Prawn Cocktail Ghost glass. Now, back when. Northern Monk did their prawn cocktail ghost. I actually failed to get any of the actual beer. Sim- similarly with the cheese and onion pale ale. <laughs> Seabrook's cheese and onion pale ale. But I did, all I could do was get the glasses because I liked them. And I think that Coram would be a prawn cocktail guy. Just a hunch. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can, I can see that. I've not given it much thought. <laughs> um, I'm drinking out of a The Osborne's glass and it's so old <laughs> it's about 20 years old uh ozzy and his family there um they've completely faded in uh dish i mean you can't see anyway because of the sun but uh yeah well, that, way, u- that used to be an osborne's glass in a way that's probably a good thing isn't it i, I don't, I don't want to look at osborne's kids or even sharon osborne well well i'm not drinking from it but frankly i don't <laughs> want to see it when you're drinking from it either Ugh, but, i mean from my point of view they've kind of taken on sort of negative Form, so they look like they've kind of moved into the, one of the 15 planes. <laughs> yeah, the 15 planes is... Yeah. You know, I only ever watched one episode of the Osbournes, and I don't even think I watched the full episode. It was largely Ozzy in the kitchen getting confused by his dogs, and Mrs Osborne having some kind of feud with the neighbours. That sounds like most episodes that I remember. Yeah. And she threw a ham or something, or a big leg of meat, over the fence and screamed, that looks like your wife's cunt. (laughs) Now, of course, cunt was bleeped out, and I'll probably have to bleep it out for this. (laughs) Will I? I don't know. Will Apple Podcasts get upset if that's on there? I have absolutely no idea. But coming from Hull, use of the C word is generally reserved for being fond exclamations about your friends. Good to see you, old cunt. Or um, calling someone a silly cunt for being daft or saying it's your round, you cunt, because someone's dipping out. Actually using it specifically to reference lady parts is where I start to get squeamish. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that usage is, is gone. Yeah. It's gone the way of history, isn't it? I think so. We've Rightly been watching... So. Are you familiar with Limmy at all? The Yes. Scottish, the Scottish comedian. comedian. Mm. We've been... <laughs> The Scottish comedian. Um, we've been watching a lot of his streams on Twitch, and he, like for him, it's every other word, so it's yeah. crept into our vocabulary quite a lot. So I need to, you know, when I'm at work, I need to keep a lid on that. But you yeah. know, his, his thing is, I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean it in a Glasgow way. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I have a cousin who works for the civil service, and when it comes to our entire family, I mean, she's not a Stimson. She's from a, my mother on my mother's side of the family, so she's a Hodgson. And actually, I've got two cousins, the sisters. And they're both very nice, educated women. One of them um, is a teacher. One of them is a civil servant. Yet it still gives me great pleasure 
when we're sitting in a pub and a couple of beers have gone down where one of them says, my God, what a cunt that bloke is. <laughs> it, it just makes me so happy, you know. Coming out of their mouths like whole dockers. I love it. I can't get enough of it. But, you know, working in some of the places I worked, everybody used it. Everybody used that vernacular. You know, we're going a little bit off topic already, aren't we? Everybody used that vernacular automatically. But I'll tell you something really funny. is Years and years and years later, a guy I worked with who was involved in prison healthcare, much, which was my business at the time. Yeah. I hadn't seen him for a while, and he texted me and said, you know what, I'm reading this book, and it made me think of you straight away. <laughs> and I said, why is that? He said, well, it's this book called The North Water, and there's been a TV series of The North Water since, but it's this book called The North Water, and it's, it's a, I can't remember, one of the Booker Prizes or something like that, one of the book prizes, or it was nominated. And he said, everybody in it talks like you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, they use cunt every seventh word. <laughs> I was laughing at it. And the brilliant thing about that book as well, if you read the original The North Water book, which is a fantastic book is um, one of my favorite pubs is in it which was which was around when hull was still a whaling port so yeah, yeah that's just a bit wow. of a random aside yeah but he, i mean he's from barnsley or is he from york originally but he lives in barnsley so he finds hull vernacular most amusing but yeah. god i've got to get the ble- i've got to get the bleep tool out for this one anyway well if that- yeah if apple have got an algorithm that finds yeah. it then yeah you'll soon know about it yeah maybe so i am wondering that if that's why my um, my youtube algorithms seem to have kicked in and, and gone down the tubes <laughs> maybe i've been saying bad things i've absolutely no idea but anyway. well i i put um i think our last podcast i put up on um youtube and it had been blocked and mm. it was just the the name had the you know the the f word in it and, ah. I cha- and, and I just thought, I wonder if I changed it, and then it it went through, and I right. and I thought, oh, it's a copyright strike because there's uh, there's a little bit of you know there's some music clips in it, yeah. But yeah, it was it was the title. It was I'd fucking in the title, so I changed it to effing. Right. Ah, well, there you go. It's weird the YouTube copyright strike and algorithm thing, isn't it? Because that War of the Worlds episode we did uh, three or four episodes back with Alistair Thompson. We kicked off with him reading out the opening, doing his best Richard Burton. And it got flagged by Sony BMG as a copyright infringement and banned in Russia. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) I told him, I said, I said, your Richard Burton reading was so accurate. The YouTube (laughs) algorithm has identified it as actually being the Richard Burton extract from War of the Worlds. So, you know, I am... I I got back in touch and uh, what's the what's the expression? I am. I challenged it. And uh, they still haven't come back and, and unblocked it. But for whatever reason, it's certainly BMG have only blocked it in Russia. Yeah, it's certain territories. Yeah. Yeah, yeah loads of mine have got strikes on them, but it says no no effect. Yeah. And then one of them, for, for no reason at all, I made a mashup of Stairway to Heaven cover <laughs> versions the other day yeah. and put that on yeah, the YouTube it. channel. And the, the only one that got hit was... Uh, Taurus by Spirit, which of course is not a cover version. It's yeah. the thing that they sued Zeppelin for because it's you know ah, uncannily, uncannily similar. So there was all these different cover versions, and the only one that got a strike on them that, that prevented it. And I, I don't I don't recall what countries it's not no. available in. But uh, yeah, the the mm. Randy yeah. California is clamping uh, down on Spirit tracks. Yeah, I've got I've got quite a few copyright strikes, but generally they just say uh, if this is monetized, 
they'll get the money. Um, and because it's not monetized anyway, so it doesn't really make any difference. But that's the first time I've ever had it blocked in a territory. Yeah. Uh, mm, there you go. Right, well, we've kicked off with a massive uh, diversion already. So <laughs> what what we need to do is I, I've already drunk my alcohol-free mango latte because it actually tasted like a melted cider apple roll yeah. as well. So I'll just uh, very quickly look at what this is. This is a festive star vanilla cinnamon and chocolate porter. Oh, good God. Um Loz and I recorded Fortress of the Pearl Part 3 the other night, and I thought that we've had a moratorium on dark beers, but I knew I would have some kicking around in a corner somewhere. So yeah. I've got uh, I've got three dark beers just to get through them here. And I must say, I have had one of these um, similar ones. I don't think I've had this one, so we'll give it a go. But meanwhile, tell us all about your podcast. Yeah, I've, um, I've been listening to podcasts for about 20 years, and it's never once occurred to me to actually do one of my own. Um, but yeah, just, just, uh, recently, um, I saw a thing on Twitter ages ago before Twitter start. I mean, actually Twitter's always been a bit dodgy, but like mm. someone said to get really big numbers on Twitter, you need to have a single focus, um, and, you know, only talk about that and only be, and, and my, my Twitter feed's been just any old thing that comes into my head. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, what could I do? That's just one thing. And I thought, well, my wife has got a huge stack of Kerrang! and Metal Hammer magazines from the late 80s that someone gave her many, many years ago. And they've been sitting in the house. We moved house a couple of times. They've been sat in the um, in the closet. And, and I've been always thinking, well, one day I'm going to get them out and just read them all. And I thought, oh, that would make a really good Twitter feed. So I got them out and I started taking pictures and posting stuff. Up, but nothing, nothing happened. I didn't really keep it up. And then after the first time i appeared on breakfast in the ruins uh someone said to me have you ever thought about doing a podcast and i'm like well i mean the only the only thing i thought about was like reviewing the the issues of krang and, and metal hammer you know because i think that'd be interesting there's, there's a couple of podcasts a bit like that there's um the giddy carousel of pop where they take an old smash hits right and they they review it and like one of my absolute favorite podcasts called chart music they take an old uh, top of the pops and like they have like six hour episodes, they go really deep into that. And so, well, I wonder if if you could do it. And then I thought, nah, nah, it probably probably wouldn't be a go. And I mentioned it to my wife, and she was like, "No, I'd be totally up for that." So yeah, just round about Christmas, I bought myself some uh, microphones, and yeah, we just just went for it. And like from the from the off, I just really enjoyed doing it. Mm. Just had so much fun. And like some some of the magazines, I did actually read at the time because I had a friend who. I think what both Kerrang and Metal Hammer and it was it was when I was just getting into music so 80, 87 88 89 it's it's across those 3 years and at at the time the only bands I like I think were Marillion and Iron Maiden so I only read I only <laughs> yeah. read the Marillion and Iron Maiden bits at the time but I was sort of aware of all these other bands so sort of going back now and actually listening to the music it's talking about you know and and we it's it's basically us having a chat and we'll you know, there's yeah. diversions all over the place. We talk about all sorts of other stuff and we like mm. other music. So, I mean, if anyone's tuning in thinking I'm a really like diehard Kerrang reader from you know, back in the day, thinking they're going to get some expert analysis, they're not getting that. But it's just yeah. us talking shit about, you know, whatever was being written about in 1988, basically. Yeah. You know what? It's a brilliant idea. And not only is it a brilliant idea, I love it because... I had all those magazines in the late 80s. And, and it's funny that in the first couple of episodes, you talked about the Black Sabbath April Fool 
Tom Jones story. And I distinctly remember picking that up in the newsagents, coming out of the newsagents, getting in the back of my dad's Ford Cortina, Mark III Ford Cortina or whatever it was, or it could have been an Austin ambassador or a princess or something, and sitting in the back and going, Dad, Dad, Tom Jones has joined Black Sabbath. And he was like, don't be bloody daft. I was like, no, he has. And I showed him it and he, he got it straight away. Yeah. Um, you know, me as a 13, 14-year-old or whatever, I'm looking at it. And even when it said, that, even when it had the juxtaposition of Minotaur struck, minor tour, the penny still didn't drop. I was absolutely yeah. convinced it was real. So I, I had those in my grubby mitts at the time. So I was I, a massive I, Kerrang reader. I, fe- I feel like a lot of people, because it, it, I think Tom Jones, he wasn't, he was known, but I think mm. I think people weren't like as fully aware of everything as they are now with the internet. Oh yeah, he hadn't done up. all of his um, collaborations with yeah. indie bands and all that stuff at that point. Yeah, he he was just the what's new pussycat guy. Yeah, so it, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. And I've looked at a couple of the other magazines, and people are writing in, and you can tell some people think it was an actual thing, even after they've said. It was our April Fool issue, you know. Yeah. The amazing thing is, Tom Jones could have done it. He he could have <laughs> he could have carried it off and made it work as well. Which well I think at the time, like most people had been in Black Sabbath at that yeah. point. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I had um I had that, I had all of the posters, I had I used to um admire Lisa Dominique, even though I never did actually hear anything by her. I've no idea <laughs> no. whether she was any good. She was from I all. didn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, she. I thought she was a massive star at the time because all I saw when I went round to my friend's house was pictures of her all over the place, yeah. and I thought she was like, she was like, oh, she's like Lita Ford, she's like Doro mm. Pesh, she's just one of these big female rock stars, and yeah. you know, it turns out she was playing like these really dog shit venues and just kind of trying to <laughs> make like obviously sort of came along at the wrong time, I guess. Yeah. You know, it was it was sort of the end of that sort of glam pop metal time. Yeah. Um, I've never but, brought myself to actually listen to any. I don't want to be disappointed. I yeah, I think you. I think you will be. <laughs> <laughs> but I also had, and I can't remember whether it was Kerrang or Metal Hammer. I had a Lita Ford poster that was so big, it was two issues worth of posters <laughs> that you had to <laughs> sell it together. And it was on. My, yeah. I think it was on my bedroom door. It was massive. I think she was wearing yeah. a wetsuit or something. <laughs> yeah. But, I don't think I've got that one. I've got yeah. I've got a metal hammer with a, t- a two part Metallica poster, but that's just not as appealing, is it? I had all these bloody posters all over my bedroom, and ninety percent of them I'd never had. I I had the Crimson Glory poster in my bedroom for about right, five with the masks. years with the masks. Because yeah. I just thought those masks are so cool. Yeah. But again, I bet I bet they were terrible as well. And uh, yeah, I've not listened to those yet. That's that's coming uh, up. I think me that's and my mate Stu, who's a similar. Um, Similar age and also metalhead and also read all those magazines. I think when we were drunk in my kitchen about five years ago, we found them on Spotify and put them on and they lasted about 30 seconds. <laughs> so, yeah, but shit, I loved all that stuff. However, I did move on to Metal Hammer. I think I was I was hardcore Kerrang, but I moved on to Metal Hammer after Tapau with a cover story <laughs> on Kerrang. And teenage me just couldn't cope with that at all and thought they've sold out, man. This is terrible. <laughs> And I, I moved over to Metal Hammer. And many, many years later, a friend of mine actually ended up writing for Metal Hammer. And um, so from time to time, he would... I was working nights. And from time to time, I would get an email from him saying, um, 
oh, do you know anything about X? And I would send him an email with some information about X. And then I think one of them was top 10 best opening tracks on heavy metal albums. So I sent him my thoughts. And then the next issue of Metal Hammer, my email was just <laughs> been copied and pasted into his article. But the good thing was that um, I used to do this and he would just send me piles and piles and piles of promo CDs. Right. So all the time I was getting CDs drop, dropping through the letterbox in, in padded envelopes, 90% of which had that kind of thrash metal band spiky writing where I could never figure out what the band <laughs> were called. Yeah, yeah. And most of it was awful. But that's how I discovered Mastodon. I think one of them, I got Leviathan by Mastodon as a promo yeah. CD yeah. and a few other decent bands. Yeah. Um, so that was that was all good fun. So yeah, I used to yeah. read Metal Hammer and my words ended up in Metal Hammer by, by hook <laughs> or by crook. Well, yeah. Uncredited though. Yeah, yeah. Although later on he did end up the uh, deputy editor for a, a magazine called Zero which was a newly launched magazine. So he asked me if I wanted to write for it. So for, I think, the seven or eight issues that it lasted, uh, about, I don't know, probably 20% of the pages were filled with my words. Uh, right. Because they didn't have many people to actually work on it. So music reviews, film articles, and then it went bust because it was actually run by a company whose other magazines were things like Caravan Monthly. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they decided to branch out into alternative culture rock and and film and it was a, it was a real eye opener actually because you read these things and someone says we spoke to Wednesday 13 about or we flew out to California to talk to Wednesday 13 on the murder dolls tour about his favorite zombie films and actually what that meant was me after a night shift ringing up his his manager who would put me on the phone to him and I would record it and talk about his favorite zombie films and then I would type it up and sat in my pants <laughs> in, in, on my shit PC in my attic <laughs> and, then, and then email it off and it would end up in print three or four weeks later. So, yeah, it wasn't very glamorous. It was a, it was a, bit, of a bit of an eye-opener and a bit of a disappointment, really. But, yes, for seven months, I was the film editor of a national magazine that you could pick up in WH Smith's and uh-huh. I didn't earn a penny for it. But, <laughs> but it was a good laugh. So, yeah, it was all right. And I got shitloads of free films. And to this day, I suspect that my old address in Hull probably still gets the odd promo DVD yeah. dropping through the letterbox because I'll still be on mailing lists. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, happy days. So, yeah, I have a strong attachment to Kerrang! and Metal Hammer. That's, well, Car- that's the fucking moral of that story. Caravan Monthly, I am pretty sure I did some illustrations for them at one point because my one of my friends became an art editor for a bit ah. and he'd send me articles i think it was caravan something caravan anyway it was, it was um jazz publishing yeah right and i think they did caravan monthly they did a couple of different tattoo magazines yeah but zero i think only lasted seven issues the editor do, do you was, own uh, them? yeah i've still got them and some yeah. of them have been dismantled and the articles are framed on the wall of my study so if i yeah. look up and go from left to right there's one on hostel when Hostel came out. Oh, wow, yeah. And I'm pr- particularly proud of the um, the stand first, which says, something, something, Hostel is causing uh, controversy. Why all the whale in a gnashing of teeth? Andrew Stinson pulls the electric screwdriver out of his ass to inve- and goes to investigate. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. There's a Wes Craven one. There's one called Bump and Grind about um, 42nd Street, terrible band movies. And, yeah, I did one on lots and lots. I was terrible at album reviews. But I was all right talking about films. Yeah. Um, 
the deputy editor, the editor, myself, and another couple of people basically created all of the content for those seven issues. And I was doing it between working night shifts in a prison. But, you know, it was a good laugh, and it's something to put on your CV. You know, yeah, you definitely. were once film editor of National Magazine. So. And then they went on to, uh, the deputy editor went on to start thequietus.com. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, so I had a few bits and bobs on the quietus back in the early days as well. So, oh, yeah. yeah, I think you linked a couple. You, mm. Something about June, right? Hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there was a Dune one. My, I think the most, the best reaction I got to any of them was uh, a defence of Alien 3. And um, it was hilarious, the amount of frothing nerds who took issue in the comments with the fact that I'd criticised Aliens. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean... I don't want to relive that. I'm roughly. sure Aliens, Aliens fans are just as pleasant as any other sci-fi... Uh, sci-fi... Uh franchise enthusiasts yeah. on the internet right yeah very true so you're i think you're six or seven episodes in to the podcast now uh yeah i think number eight comes out tomorrow morning right okay and Which is a it's metal called hammer, i think can i pod with madness yes yeah i didn't mention that did i no yeah, so I we need to let madness? people know i mean obviously i'll put it on the show notes anyway and i'll, I'll put links to it but it, it did abuse me on, I think, your first episode when you talked about all some of the alternative podcast titles that you considered. Um, but Can I Pod with Madness is a pretty good one. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you just got to pick one, haven't you? I, I, I couldn't really decide. So, yeah, hmm. that, that one came up. It's like, well, yeah, that'll do. Yeah. You know. It's a good one. Right. Why are we here? Why are we here, indeed? We're here to talk about Queen of the Swords, the second instalment of... Elric, Elric, Coram's Saga by Michael Moorcock, uh, The Prince in the Scarlet Robe. What edition are you working from? First of all, I'm going to turn the light on so mm. you'll be able to see. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, the edition that I'm working from is Grafton. Um, it's an omnibus edition. Ah, we talked um, about that on one, of the ep- on the one of the art episodes, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. I, I love that the, cover. 1987, this one. Yeah. Oh, first published eighty six as a as a single edition. Yeah, yeah. Covered by Mark Mark Solowski, who's not not a name that you hear very often, but it's uh, yeah. I think this this one's beautiful, and same with the uh, Chronicles of Corum, the the second yeah, saga. Yeah, they're really really nice. lovely, really yeah. lovely covers. Yeah, yeah. I've got that one in hardcover somewhere, but I lent it to someone, and when it came back, the glue on the spine had all split, uh, so I can't really read from that anymore because it falls to bits. I decided, because um, my Mayflower edition, I fear that it will just disintegrate if if I uh, am too heavy-handed with it. So I decided to go with the Fantasy Masterworks edition from 1992. Yeah. Now, I must say, I'm not convinced by this cover. I think it's a pleasant enough painting, but it's by a cover design by Richard Carr. Very nice painting, but... He ain't got an eye patch. He's got he's got two completely normal hands. He's not wearing a scarlet robe. He's wearing some kind of red leather jerkin, which I'm I'm not particularly keen on. And he just looks like some white haired dude roaring. So yeah, not really he's, into this cover. He's quite chunky. He's he's like he's like sturdy on that. He's not how I would call him a sort of character. Normally is does it just doesn't look like Coram at all to me. But anyway. It's uh, it's a good collection of lots and lots of very, very pleasant stories. Because I must say, we did enjoy covering Night of the Swords when I did it with Oz. But we should probably 
recap what happened in Night of the Swords. And I think I might have pre-prepared you for this. Well, you got two options. Yeah. Do you, do you want my uh, recollections of it? Or <laughs> I, I've also got, which, you know, I'm sure I'll get stuff wrong. Yeah. I've also got the um, first comics ah. issue five of the Chronicles of Quorum. And there's a very handy one-page uh, pressy of the previous book. Oh, nice. Which might, might be a little bit more erudite than I can manage. Yeah, sounds good. Go for it. Okay, so it's, I mean, very unmorcock like who are these guys anyway at the top? But then it goes into the, the piece. The Vadag were once one of the ancient races of the Earth. For a thousand millennia, they had amused themselves with abstractions, art, and occasionally war. Gifted with heightened senses, they were able to see into the planes bordering the Earth and move between them at will. But now these planes were closing to them. Closing because the rise of another race, the Mabdan, cruel, superstitious, the slaves of fear. The human Mabdan thought the Vadag demons, Shefanau, and determined to rid the world of them. Seeking his lost kin, Prince Coram Jalen Ursi, the prince in the scarlet robe, was captured and mutilated by the Mabdan lord, Glandith Akrai. After escaping, Coram was healed by the Margravain Relina, a Mabdan lady, and learned to love again. When Relina was taken by Shul Anjavan, Coram made a terrible bargain to save her. He would take the Eye of Rin and the Hand of Quul, limbs of two lost gods containing great powers, and return with the heart of Ariok, Lord of Chaos, who used the Mabdan to extend his power on Earth. Coram succeeded in destroying Ariok's heart, thereby destroying Shul also, and found he had aided the return of Lord Arkin, God of Law. Arkin prophesied that Coram would be the hero that would restore the balance between chaos and law in the Fifteen Plains. But now the prince in the scarlet robe's only wish is to return to Moidal Castle with Relina and live in peace as long as the gods allow. So cool. they leave quite a lot out of that. It's, but it's a pretty good prayer, isn't it's, it? And yeah, it's, it's more than good. enough for our purposes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I can't imagine anyone's listening to this who's not listening to your uh, Knight of the Swords episodes. Very probably, but if they're anything like me, I've forgotten ninety percent of it as well. <laughs> so we're going to start with book one, and we're going to cover book one on this podcast, which says, "In which Coram meets a poet, hears a portent, and plans a journey." That's a fairly good summary. It's a, a, a fairly brisk four chapters, this, but there's lots and lots of good stuff in it. Mm. So I'm just going to um, kick off with a little bit of a reading. It says, Now the skies of summer were pale blue over the deeper blue of the sea, over the golden green of the mainland forest, over the grassy rocks of Moidal's Mount, and the white stones of the castle raised on its peak. And the last of the Vadag race, Prince Coram in the scarlet robe, was deep in love with the Mabdan woman, Margravine Relina of Alamglil. Coram, hailing a sigh, whose right eye was covered by a patch encrusted with dark jewels, so that it resembled the orb of an insect, whose left eye, the natural one, was large and almond-shaped with a yellow centre and purple surround, was unmistakably Vadag. His skull was narrow and long and tapering at the chin, and his ears were tapered too. They had no lobes, and were flat against the skull. The hair was fair and finer than the finest Mabdan maidens. His mouth was wide, full-lipped, and his skin was rose-pink and flecked with gold. He would have been handsome save for the baroque blemish that was now his right eye, and for the somewhat grim twist to his lips. Then too, there was the alien hand, which strayed often to his sword hilt, visible when he pushed back his scarlet robe. 
This left hand bore six fingers on it and seemed encased in a jewelled gauntlet. Not so. The jewels were the hand's skin. It was a sinister thing and it had crushed the heart of the Knight of the Swords himself, my Lord Arioch of Chaos, and allowed Arkin, Lord of Law, to return. So that description is a, a, a pretty interesting one because has, ever, has anyone ever drawn him pink? Rose, oh, that's a good question. Rose pink with gold flecks. I don't ever recall anybody going the whole hog with Coram illustrations. Maybe it's down to colorists. Maybe the artists draw them in black and white, the colorists come along, or maybe they just think, you know what? No, rose pink might just be a little bit too much. Well, I'm looking at the um, this comic book, uh, Draw My uh, Mike Minola, mm. and typical me, I got rid of the third and fourth parts because they weren't drawn by Mike Minola. Uh, um, but, uh, and I think his stuff on Knight of the Swords is like the best Moorcock uh, adaptation in comics. I absolutely love it. I don't think his stuff's as good here, but he is indeed kind of coloured pink. I don't uh, know if you'll be able to see that. Um, and oh, I, yeah. I mean, looking at all the other human characters, they're a little bit more sort of darker, a little yeah. bit more brown. I mean, on reading it, it, it never quite hit me that you know they were they were coloring him slightly differently. But yeah. uh, oh well, I go mean, there's I. only so much you can do in four color printing, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, go, Mike. Impressed, impressed that you instantly answered that question by showing me a pink carum. <laughs> <laughs> so he's living with Margravine Relina in Moidel's Mount, and I must say, there's a description of Relina as well. She sounds pretty hot. Like Lisa Dominique hot maybe, but but probably classier. <laughs> well, uh, I've got a question about Relina, right? Go how on. old is how old is Relina? Well, we know that she had a husband who died, but that doesn't mean much because no. I, I think we're fortunate in that he hasn't referred to her as something like his girl bride. Yeah. Which I think has occurred in other Mocock. Most but, most of the Elrics, right? Yeah, he's, he's with a teenager. Yeah, my, I, I my, get the sense that Relina is at least a mature woman. It's it's implied, isn't it? The fact that yeah. she's had this life before, she's a yeah. widow. It never it never says it, but yeah, I think in my kid brain when I was reading this, and he uses the word womanly. Yeah, but like um, I thought, oh, this is a mature, this is an older woman. I mean, at that point, it would have. It would have been like 32 or yeah. something, but de ju just definitely very distinct from certainly the, the woman in the Hawkmoon, Yazelda. Yeah. She was, always seemed like a you know teenager, you know. Um, yeah, and, and it's the same with Erica's as well, with uh, the king's daughter. She's, mm. she's, she's still at home. She's like a, a fine bride for a, a hero. God, who knows how old that could be in, in those terms. Hopefully not 15 or something. I think the way he writes her as well, um, it, it, she didn't get a huge amount to do, but she's. I think she comes across as a lot more confident, competent yeah. and a lot more of a sort of rounded individual than, I guess, a lot of the characters in the Elric books. But I guess because yeah. they were... He was younger, you know. Yeah. I, I think he the, these are early 70s he was writing these, right? Yeah, all three came out in 71. Mm. Which is why I think because that's round about the time he's starting to write his new Elric stuff. He's already written the Heartmoon stuff two or three years before that. Mm. 
is on this massive roll, and he himself is probably well into his 30s by that point. So his writing is perhaps more mature, because I think the stories that make up Stormbringer, certainly one of those refers to Elric's girl bride. Um, He's writing probably when he's 21 or 22, and, you know, so hopefully he's kind of grown and matured as as a writer by that point. But, yeah, so I, I never get any creepy sense from any of this. And the other cool thing about Relina is, although as we read on, there is one point where they go into a village and they leave the women behind <laughs> in the trees. There is a point where, and we'll get to it, where there's a little bit of conflict. And whilst Coram is musing um, over whether he actually wants to kill these people, she just charges past him, lances at the ready with their men and, and wades into battle. Yeah. So yeah, she's, she's got a little bit more agency than your standard 1960s Elric female yeah bride or even Erikos but of course by the 70s he's writing about Una Person and Catherine Cornelius and their adventures by the 80s he's writing Fortress of the Pearl and introducing Una the Dream Thief so his female characters are again in a lot more texture but I think I think in the in his early 20s they were definitely paper thin and there's not a huge amount of 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 depth to the Relina at this point but certainly more so than Hawkmoon's um, other half, or yeah. you know, or even Ermizad, Erikos's second squeeze after he's decided that the Eldren are a, are a, a better bet than the humans. Yeah, but, she seems a little bit less like a plot device. I mean, she's yeah. sort of emotional support for him. I mean, he's thousands of years years old. Yeah, but somehow she's sort of looking after him. Oh, absolutely, and you know, she's rescued him. She's she's almost made him psychologically whole again. Although, as we read. <laughs> as we read this chapter, it's still pretty fucking miserable. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, she's 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 doing her best with him, and and without her, I think it's pretty clearly acknowledged that without her, he would be pretty much nothing. So because he's pretty glum, he's preoccupied with Glandatha Cray and his dodgy pony tribes. <laughs> so obsessed, in fact, that and I love this bit. So they're out riding in the woods. They've gone gone over the causeway. They're out riding riding in the woods, and. Uh, there's this brilliant bit where, which I did laugh at, where it says, um, "As they rode one pretty day through the woods, he cast about him with his mismatched eyes, and he said to Relina, Glandith must die.' And she nodded, but did not question why he had made this sudden statement, for she had heard it many times in similar circumstances. <laughs> so they'll just be out riding in the woods, looking at the blossoms, watching the rabbits chase around between the trees. Glandith must die." What a downer, man! You know they should make up. They should have made a whole issue of a comic, which is purely made up of several panels of them riding through really beautiful countryside, or you know, into a town to look at bolts of cloth, and he just stares into the middle distance every other page and says, "Glandit must die." She just rolls her eyes and they move on. But I mean, I get, I get it. <laughs> After what he did, yeah, I, I get it. But yeah, I think Coram's a bit of a. Difficult yeah. person to live with at this stage. I think he should just pay a little bit more attention to his missus and stop yeah. <laughs> and stop being so gloomy. But they have a nice enough jaunt around anyway, around the forest. But on returning to the Causeway, to Moidle's Mount, the wading god just happens by. Now, we had a quite amusing comment on YouTube about the Knight of the Swords. I think it was book three. Well, you get one of these comments and someone says, someone put in quotes... Fleeting appearance of the wading god, close quotes, which is obviously something that either Loz or I said. 
and then followed it up with, have you even read these books? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 30 years ago, give us a chance, mate. (laughs) Crikey. Uh, But, yeah, The Word in God, I think, is... uh, I I love The Word in God. It reminds me of the the giant bloke with the boat for a hat in um, Time Bandits. Yeah. 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 It, it it does feel very sort of mythological rather rather than just yes, someone great. knocking out a fantasy story. It does feel like something you'd hear in a fairy tale or something. Yeah, it's fabulous. It says, uh, Seabirds called and wheeled in the cloudless sky, sometimes diving to spear a fish with their beaks and return with their catch to their nests amongst the rocks of Moidle's Mount. The hooves of the horses thumped the sand or splashed through the surf as they neared the causeway, which would soon be covered by the tide. And then Coram's attention was caught by a movement far out to sea. He craned forward as he rode and peered into the distance. What is it? she asked him. I'm not sure. A big wave, perhaps. But this is not the season of heavy seas. He pointed. Look. There seems to be a mist hanging over the water a mile or two out. It's hard to observe. It's a wave. Now the water near the shore became slightly more agitated as the wave approached. It's as if some huge ship were passing by at great speed, Coram said. It's familiar. Then he looked more sharply into the distant haze. Do you see something? A shadow? The shadow of a man on the mist? Yes, I do see it. It's enormous. Perhaps an illusion. Something to do with the light. No, he said. I've seen that outline before. It's the giant, the great fisherman, who was the cause of my shipwreck on the coast of Kulakra. The wading god, she said. I know of him. He is sometimes also called the fisher. Legends say that when he is seen, it is an ominous portent. It was an ominous enough portent for me when I last saw him, Coram said with some humour. Now good-sized waves were rolling up the beach and they backed their horses off. He comes closer, yet the mist follows him. It was true. The mist was moving nearer the shore as the waves grew larger and the gigantic fisherman waded closer. They could see his outline clearly now. His shoulders were bowed as he hauled his great net, walking backwards through the water. What is it he thought to catch? whispered Coram. Whales? Sea monsters? Anything, she replied. Anything that is upon or under the sea. She shivered. The causeway was now completely covered by the artificial tide and there was no point in going forward. They were forced further back towards the trees as the sea rolled in on massive breakers, crashing upon the sand and the shingle. A little of the mist seemed to touch them and it became cold, though the sun was still bright. Coram drew his cloak about him, then came the steady sound of the giant strides as he waded on. Somehow he seemed a doomed figure to Coram, a creature destined to drag his nets forever through the oceans of the world, never finding the thing he sought. They say fishes for his soul, murmured Rolina. For his soul. Now the silhouette straightened its back and hauled in its net. Many creatures struggled there, some of them unrecognisable. The wording god inspected his catch carefully and then shook out the net, letting the things fall back into the water. He moved on slowly, once again fishing for something it seemed he would never find. The mist began to leave the shore as the dim outline of the giant moved out to sea again. The waters began to subside until at last they were still, and the mist vanished beyond the horizon. I love that stuff. I think the the world building and the mythology of this part of the Coram saga is fantastic and really, really, I don't know, really satisfying in a weird way. When uh, she says they say he fishes for his soul, it does feel like, I think in a lot of books, you would have this this sort of random encounter. Yeah. 
and then it'd be over and done with. But the fact that there's a history and people have seen the this this thing over the years and they've got stories about it, it, yeah. it just it feels so fairy tale, you know. Yeah, it's funny that that it provoking that remembrance of Time Bandits and. I was thinking when I was reading it, I started thinking about Time Bandits. Not only was I thinking, I haven't watched it for years, I really need to watch it again. But in its own way, is Time Bandits as close to a Mocock-style quest-stroke travelogue film as we've ever had? Because Knight of the Swords does this. The Heartmoon books do this. Fortress of the Pearl did it to a degree. Which was, you get a setup, you get a mystery, you get a MacGuffin, and then you get your core set of characters jumping through scenario to scenario to scenario where they finally meet up with the big bad at the end. And I think, obviously, we talked about the final programme recently as well, and I think there, there are films that have come close to capturing the tone of a Moorcock story. Moorcock at this point mm. in in his writing. And I think Time Bandits is pretty close. It's episodic, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the, the thing about jumping through holes in the space-time continuum and having the map, and then you get to the end, and it's this capricious god that doesn't really seem to care that yeah. much yeah. about his creations. Yeah. And then the, the 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 evil character that his reasons for doing what he's doing don't really seem to make any sense. He's bored. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, but, he's bored shitless. I, evil. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I think my memory of that movie, it's been a while since I've seen it. I used yeah. to watch that. That's one of the films I used to have on video and watch a lot. I think the thing with evil was he was created to be evil, so he's being evil. He doesn't yeah. really have any goal beyond evil. Yeah, and, and he's, he's super bored of standard evil. So he just tries to think of more interesting ways to be evil. And, you know, even if it means just turning his henchmen into dogs or you know whatever it's, it's i just love it it's wonderful and i'm glad he, to watch it he again. wants to he wants to get into computers as well doesn't he yeah that's right <laughs> he yeah. wants to he wants like a microwave yeah 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 oh, it's, it's brilliant and uh, david warner is fantastic in it yeah. as well that's, that's yeah i won't go into that i was, go, I was just about to start spaffing off about david warner but let's let's stick with uh let's stick with the book because we're about to get introduced one of Murcock's most endearing and enduring characters, one of yeah. the absolute greats. Yeah. Back at Moidle's castle, Rolina's attendants are pretty anxious regarding the word in God's appearance. They think it's a, well, it's not really an omen because he's fucking massive and he was there, but they think it, it, it bodes ill and the fear that the pony tribes will return. I've got a just just as an aside. I've got a good um, spelling mistake in the comic book. Oh. Um, so in the uh, in the book, there is no danger. It is a warning of danger that only the waiting god brings. Hmm. In the in the comic, she says nothing. It was the wrong god. And when I read that, I thought, oh, that's an interesting line. But yeah. she she should be saying it was the waiting god, and everyone will know. Uh, what she means, but just ah. the, just that spelling error of the wrong god, right? Yeah, right, which god were you expecting? Mm. Oh, yeah, it's just just one that got past the editor, I guess. Yeah, and I bet there were a lot of readers thinking, well, it was the right god, then, yeah, as you just yeah. pointed out, and probably waiting for something maybe that was foreshadowing something that never actually <laughs> yeah. comes to pass. Yeah, yeah, so they're, they're afraid the pony traps are going to return, Carum stares glum and hits the wine, but lo. A knock at the doors of the castle. And yes, it is Jerry. Jerry Aconel. 
And this is Jerry's first appearance in the Coram Saga, but in, in a way, his second appearance on this podcast, as he briefly appears in the Fortress of the Pearl, Jasper Colinadus. And he's a dream manifestation, so he might not count. But he does have whiskers, though, with him. Yeah. So maybe he does. I don't know. And he acts the same, doesn't he? He's yeah. Like, he's definitely... Yeah. But in this respect, this is technically Jerry's first true appearance. Mm. I don't think he's been in any of the other Mocock books at this point. I think this is his, his first appearance across the board. And it's a watershed moment for the eternal champion lore and saga, this appearance, because he is an exposition machine. There is lots and lots of multiversal exposition as Jerry explains his relationship to the champion, of which, he explains, Coram is one of many. So he name-checks that he is, if he's of anywhere, he's of Tanalon. Which, of course, in Tanalon, if you're reading this in 1971 and you're up on your mocock, you're like, ooh, ooh, Tanalon, because Tanalon has already been mentioned in multiple Elric stories, even though chronologically they're all over the place, even in 1971, yeah. depending on what edition you've got. But you've had to rescue Tanalon, the story with Ricky the Red Archer. So the fact that he's, he's off Tanalon, making that explicit link with the city, and then he refers directly to Rakia, Elric, and Hawkmoon, and also is it Asquiel as well, which is a name that used to pop up from time to time yeah. in these books. What I meant to do was check the Golanx edition of this to see if that list of heroes that he name-checks has been revised more recently. I'll maybe do that later and, and uh, refer to it in the outro. But I suspect reading this on release, after be, having been a Moorcock reader, this would be pretty epic and heady stuff to fantasy fans and readers of Moorcock back in 1971. Well, it's odd that he, ju- he just kind of spats it all out in the first yeah. chapter of the book. You You would have thought... It, it makes more sense to have kind of passed that information out or have a big revelation, but it's no, it's sort of told kind of fairly matter of factly, but obviously he's yeah. setting out his stall. This is what these books are now. This is what yeah. I'm writing now, and yeah. this is all part of it, and you better be on board. So this is it, chapter one. Boom. Here's Jerry. Here's an explainer. You know, Coram scratching his head. I mean, Coram's pretty impressed too, but if you're the reader and you've, you've, you've got back from WH Smith's, you put the new Budgie album on, and put your feet up and open a can of <laughs> open a can of skull or whatever, and uh, or have a cup of tea and get your get your new milk new milk on, and you go, ooh, interesting stuff, yeah, fantastic. And of course, it's not just this. We found when we were reading the NEL biker novels, which were from I think seventy three, that even there were name checking and referencing Moorcock in various different ways. It's just part of that web. Part of that yeah. web of being a fan of this stuff in the early 70s, it must have been so rewarding. I mean, it was rewarding yeah. for us, I guess, in the 80s, reading all this stuff. But yeah, yeah. when there was only uh, maybe, I mean, sir, I was about to say a handful of Mocock novels, there was still probably 25 yeah, in 1971. There's a hefty pile, yeah. Yeah, there was, but yeah, yeah. Just working your way through them, though, like, I, I do remember getting to a point where it's like, when's the next bit going to be when it's a Eternal Champion? moment yeah. you know when is he going to run into you yeah. know I, I think in the in the first book um in night of the swords he meets the guy hanifax who's got that real sort of moon glum energy and you yeah. think he's going to be the companion yeah he's definitely taking that place and it, i guess it's quite shocking that he gets killed 
fairly yeah. quickly. But yeah, here here we've got his uh, his his true companion, I guess. Yeah, Kara was pretty impressed too. He's impressed and and is, you know, so he's aware that that Jerry is someone who moves between the planes, mm. and he says, "So you can wander at will amongst the fifteen planes," Coram said softly, as some Vadag ones could. Jerry smiled. I can wander nowhere at will, or to very few places. I can sometimes return to Tanalon if I wish, but normally I'm held from one existence to another without, apparently, rhyme or reason. I usually find that I'm made to fulfil my role wherever I land up, which is to be a companion to champions, the friend of heroes. That is why I recognise you at once for what you are, the champion eternal. I have known him in many forms, but he has not always known me. Perhaps in my own period's amnesia, I've not always known him. And are you never a hero yourself? I have been heroic, I suppose, as some would see it. Perhaps I have even been a hero of sorts. And there again, it is sometimes my fate to be one aspect of a particular hero. A part of another man, or group of other men, who together make up a single great hero. The stuff of our identities is blown by a variety of winds, all of them whimsical, about the multiverse. There is even a theory I have heard that all mortals are aspects of one single cosmic identity, and some believe that even the gods are part of that identity, that all the planes of existence, all the ages which come and go, all the manifestations of space which emerge and vanish, are merely ideas in this cosmic mind, different fragments of its personality. Such speculation leads us nowhere and everywhere, but it makes no difference to our understanding of our immediate problem. So there's lots and lots of that like philosophical, multiversal conversing over these pages, but it's great stuff. Great stuff, and you as know, a fifteen-year-old, that was blowing oh, my mind. That was heady stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And not only that, it lodged in my head so much that when we came to start playing more cock role-playing games, as you know, you've illustrated him. My character, Gerard Arthur Connolly, is a very, very lazy mashup of Jerry O'Connell and Oswald Bastable. Because I always wanted my character to be the companion to the champions who were the other characters, who were all generally a massive disappointment, <laughs> pretty much across the board. Uh, but I had such fun with it, and also being a, a lazy role player, um, I think I played it so many different guises of that character. But it was always, always driven by my love of the character of Jerry O'Connell. It's, it's fantastic, and so it's a weird combination of being stylish cool whimsical and nonchalant and all, all of the things that as a teenager i probably wanted to be yeah. you know more so than i mean a lot of people identify with elric because of the emo you know identifications but i always wanted to be jerry o'connell <laughs> probably because I never, I never want to take immediate responsibility for anything i just want to i just want to stand on the sidelines being yeah. sardonic <laughs> yeah making quips yeah it, it, yeah. it struck me uh, reading this the last time. He's like Ford Prefect, you <laughs> yes, know. He's, yes. he's he's a weird combination of he knows a lot of stuff, but he's also a bit of an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. So it's all crazy stuff, and it turns out there's, there's more exposition. Jerry explains that he rocked up in the human capital of Kalanweir, or the capital of the Mabden, Broan Mabden, and. All granite and gloom, but found it not to his tastes. He had word of Glandith while he was there, and the men of Brown Mabden, a continent to the west, who were taking an interest in the war of Glandith and his king against Luan Ash. So he did one, but got caught on the coast in the wading God's, God's net, 
only escaping when he neared Moidal's castle. And we forgot to mention, by the way, that up until this point, he's butt naked. <laughs> it's because he stripped all his wet clothes off in front of the fire. So all of this exposition, like three pages of, of dialogue between the characters, he's been naked the entire way through because he divested himself with wet clover. But a servant brings them back cleaned and dried, and for the first time we get some outrageous moorcock couture. <laughs> yeah. So what's he wearing? A servant brought in Jerry's clothes. They were clean and dry. Jerry thanked him and began to don them, as unselfconsciously as he had taken them off. His shirt was of bright blue silk. His flared pantaloons were as bright a scarlet as Coram's robe. He tied a big yellow sash about his waist, and over this buckled a sword, from which hung a scabbarded sabre and a long poniard. He pulled on soft boots which reached the knee, and tied a scarf about his throat. His dark blue cloak he placed on the bench beside him, together with his hat, which he carefully creased to suit his taste and his bundle. He seemed satisfied. You had best tell me all you think I need to know, he suggested. Then I may be able to help you. I've gathered a great deal of information in my travels. Most of it useless. <laughs> I fucking love this guy. Funnily enough, Loz also was super inspired by Jerry when it came to his characters, because Loz's characters were all about hats and outrageous <laughs> pantaloons. So yeah, it definitely had a big effect on us. Definitely. And I've got to say, loon pants need to make a comeback. <laughs> and actually, I'm saying this, but if, you, if you're of the right makeup, you can get away with reading them. Because Dave, who's been doing the Heartmoon stories with me, of Sonus fame, he does wear pantaloons. <laughs> he, wears, he wears wafters, and he could get away with it. But, yeah, so loon pants need to make a comeback with well, think... Arctic rolls. Yeah. Well, I think at the advanced age of 50, uh, throw aside all self-consciousness and start wearing pantaloons. Yeah, you know what? I've not got the legs for it, but if you do it, I'll <laughs> applaud you all the way. I'll just eat the Arctic rolls. So, sadly, Coram's got no interest in Arctic rolls, though, and uh, he suggests the war between Luminesh and the pesky Mabden is pretty reflective of the war between law and chaos. And we get quite a lot of this law and chaos stuff in the subsequent chapters. Mm. But we'll get to that. Coram may have, through the banishment of Ariok, allowed Lord Arkin a foothold back in the world, but the other sword rulers are assisting man, and they know that now from some of uh, Jerry's feedback from what he figured out in uh, Kalanweir. But Jerry finally opens his sack, and we meet Whiskers, a very cool cat, and he can fly as well. So this is, this is the introduction to Whiskers into the Moorcock multiverse as well. I think it's quite exciting that Chapter 2... Is basically Whiskers' adventure, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Whiskers goes spying to Callanweir and witnesses a pretty grim spectacle. And the description of him flying in and, and finding his little spot in the in the rafters to observe this big feast of the the Pony tribes and this king is really cool. But the other thing I really love, and this is classic Moorcock, really, in that it inverts the whole Robert E. Howard ideal is that the Mabden leadership and the Mabden in general are these huge, massive, muscular men with huge appetites, seven feet tall, enormous swords. But unlike Robert E. Howard's Conan, they're utterly diseased in body and mind. They're broken by their own hatred. They're grotesque, vicious and... Poor Whiskers has to witness some pretty grim stuff while yeah. he's up there in those rafters, doesn't he? 
In the centre of Callan Weir's Great Hall was a dais carved from a single block of unpolished obsidian, and upon this dais was a throne of granite studded with quartz. Some attempt had been made to carve gargoyles upon the stone, but the workmanship was crude and unfinished. Nonetheless, the half-shapes carved there were more sinister than if they had been fully realised. Seated upon this throne were three people. On each asymmetrical arm sat a naked girl, with flesh tattooed in obscene designs. Each girl held a jug, with which she replenished the wine cup of the man who sat on the throne itself. This man was big, more than seven feet tall. A crown of pale iron was upon his matted hair. The hair was long, with short plaits clustered over the forehead. It had been yellow, but was now streaked with white, and it seemed that some attempt had been made to dye these streaks back to their original colour. The beard too was yellow and flecked with areas of stained grey. The face was haggard, covered in broken veins, and from the deep eye sockets peered eyes that were bloodshot, faded blue, full of hatred, cunning and suspicion. Robes clothed the body from neck to foot. They were plainly of Vadag origin, brocades and samite now covered in the marks of food and wine. Over them was thrown a dirty coat of tawny wolfskin, just as plainly made by the Mabden of the East, whom the man ruled. The hands were encrusted with stolen rings torn from the fingers of slain Vadag and Nadrag. One of the hands rested upon the pommel of a great battered iron sword. The other clutched a bronze diamond-studded goblet from which slopped thick wine. Surrounding the dais, their backs to their master was a guard of warriors, each as tall or taller than the man on the throne. They stood rigidly, shoulder to shoulder, swords drawn, and placed across the rims of their great oval shields of leather and iron sheathed in brass. Their brass helms covered most of their faces, and from the side escaped the hair of their heads and beards. Their eyes seemed to contain a perpetual and controlled fury, and they looked steadily into the middle distance. This was the Asper Guard, the Grim Guard, which was unthinkingly loyal to the man who sat upon the throne. King Lear Abroad turned his massive head and surveyed his court. Warriors filled it. The only women were the tattooed naked wenches who served the wine. Their hair was dirty, their bodies bruised, and they moved like dead things, with their heavy wine jugs balanced on their hips squeezing themselves in and out of the ranks of the big brutal Mabden men in their barbaric war gear, with their braided hair and beards. These men stank of sweat and of the blood they had spilled. Their leather clothes creaked as they raised wine cups to their hard mouths. Their harness rattled. A feast had recently taken place here, but now the tables and the benches had been cleared away, and save for the few who had collapsed and been dragged into corners, all the warriors were standing, watching their king and waiting for him to speak. The light from iron braziers suspended from the roof beams flung their huge shadows on the dark stone, and made their eyes shine red like the eyes of beasts. Each warrior in the hall was a commander of other warriors. Here were earls and dukes and counts and captains who had ridden from all parts of Leah's kingdom to attend this gathering, and some, dressed a little differently from the others, favouring fair to stolen Vadag and Nadrak Samite, had come across the sea as emissaries from Broan Mabden, the rocky land of the northwest from which the whole Mabden race had originated years ago. I love the uh, the contrast between the descriptions of the world that we've had thus far with this, which is just brute force and sweat and blood, and these people... You just know these people are wrong'uns. Mm. You know, straight away, you know they're wrong'uns. And Glandith is there too, and he has an enslaved Nadrag to give intelligence on Coram and the defeat of Ariok. So the king, in order to respond to this, appeals to the gods of the Mabden, the dog and the bear, and offers them a terrible sacrifice, 
And I've got to say, when you read The Knight of the Swords and you get to the scene where Glandeth takes Coram's hand and eye, I'd read lots and lots of Mocock up to that point. And even in some of the Heartmoon stories where you get brief descriptions of pyramids of bodies stacked up by the, um, the Grand Britannians, some of the grimmest stuff is in these Coram books. And the mutilation of Coram is grim. But this scene, I think, is one of the grimmest in all of Mocock that I can remember. And I'd forgot all about it because the method of summoning the dog and the bear entails bringing in cages of men, women and children who are described as comely. So they pick out comely men, women and children and then hoist the cages and set fires beneath them so they burn alive so the dog and the bear can come along and eat them and take their fill and grant the Mabden favour. It's really horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's deeply disturbing. Deeply disturbing. Yeah, whereas the line is something like primitive gods for a primitive people. Yes. And yeah, it's it's utterly horrific. The th- thing I like about the idea of the Mabden as villains is that they're constantly banging on about how... Um, you know, the Vabag are obscene because they're sorceress yeah. and they're, you know, looking into hell and they're doing all this magic, which is, you know, uh, decadent and, and foul. Yeah. But they're absolute hypocrites because they're doing exactly the same. They're using sorcery just as much. I think I, I think it progresses through the books. I think my memory of the third one is they're doing it even more. And yeah. he's, he's got like a sorcerer who follows him around. Yeah, but yeah, I know what you mean. And the the the, the mutilation scene in the first book, I was thinking. Um, I think I think Coram actually might be my favourite character of the four because he's the most sympathetic. But like Moorcock sort of brutally forces you to be sympathetic towards him. You can't yeah. you can't not feel sympathy for him because he's so you know he's so brutalised. Like Elric never gets anything like that. Uh, you know, we hear about um, Hawkmoon's family being killed and he's yep. in chains at the beginning, but you know, you never get anything at all like this. And you know, Ericos is just such a sort of a, a strange sort of ethereal character. You don't know what his backstory is in you know the Ericos character before John Dacre joins with him. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think um, Coram is definitely the character that takes the biggest kicking, and the the people of Coram's world take the biggest kicking. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think Coram has any more agency than any of the other characters, but his response to the world around him and his, the conversations that he gets into, like he did with Ariok towards the end of Night of the Swords, where he essentially is he's having none of it, and he challenges it. He challenges everything. He challenges the... And we don't see it in this, although we do see Jerry having a couple of choice words with, with Lord Arkin later on, which is quite amusing. But he is not prepared to stand by like all of the other characters are, maybe with the exception of Hawkman, and just allow destiny to decide. Mm. Even if his efforts don't always succeed in him forging his own path. I think Hawkman's probably the other one who... Actually, no, Hawkman is just blown by the whims of the rune staff isn't he? And because his plan is revenge and to save all his friends, he just goes in that direction. Erikos is a strange one because Erikos, until Dragon in the Sword, when it's John Dacre anyway, Erikos never has a companion to provide the human side of him. Mm. So Erikos appears and he seems to have no moral compass 
unless a hot babe tells him that what he's doing is wrong and you know and, and, and appeals to him in a way that the previous hot babe failed to yeah yeah he just he flip-flops just between them like whoever's saying yeah. whoever's there he's he's sort of believing them and you know yeah. signing up to to whatever they want is that that's yeah. such a weird but i read that a couple like maybe i think probably when your f- podcast first started yeah. and i was just so shocked how how odd and how different it is and it almost seems like uh, an examination of heroic fantasy yeah like he's not making any decisions he's just doing stuff and he ends up doing some appalling stuff is that a comment on just characters in fiction just doing whatever they need to do you know it's so it's so strange and it's not surprising that there haven't been these long sagas of Ericos the way they have yeah. been of Elric and Corrin because how how could you maintain that I think the the reason I kind of admire the Eternal Champion, and whilst when I read it as a nipper, um, it didn't really resonate with me that much, and when I read it as an adult, it still doesn't resonate with me in terms of identification with any of the characters. But it does resonate in that, in a weird way, it's a complete rejection of the classic hero's journey. Yeah. And what it is, is it's a guy who's summoned to carry out a task, and he's like, yeah, all right, I'll carry out this task because it's my destiny. And, oh, yeah, there's this hot babe. So in order to, you know, follow my destiny and be with the hot babe, which is also my destiny, I will commit genocide. Until the point where another hot babe intercedes (laughs) and I'll flip over and I'll commit genocide in the other direction. Because she was kind to me when I was wounded and they didn't just kill me. So that must be my destiny. Yeah. And that's why I really enjoyed it at that time. I mean, we must have enjoyed it because I think we talked about it for about four and a half hours (laughs) for three episodes. So, yeah. But it's good stuff. And... This whole scene where Whiskers is is watching these men be deeply unpleasant, I think it really strengthens the whole thing. Obviously, when you get when you get villains doing bad things, it strengthens stuff. And sometimes I think Mocock villains are a little bit mustache twirling, you know, Thelab Kana type villains, yeah. or even the Theocrat Pantang. Yeah, is 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 quite thinly drawn. Whereas this lot, all, all I can visualize when I'm when I'm thinking of this is Oliver Reed in his 30s, as Glandith Acre, with grease dribbling down his chin, being yeah. really, really horrible to this slave Nadrag, and, and you know, being full-on full on villain mode that he was in in the 70s and early 80s when he was appearing in straight-to-video crap movies uh, for 10 minutes, like Tarnsman of Gore and things like that, and, and, and being a villain. Yeah, it's great. It's all good stuff. But they, the dog and the bear give the Mabden king a task that he must take Coram's heart in order to restore Ariok to his rightful place. And they will send Aid, the messenger of Zionbag, the Queen of Swords. We only get one more reference to Zion, the, the messenger of Zionbag, the Queen of Swords, in this first part in book one. But obviously this is going to be some heavy dude at some point who's going to rock up and, and cause these people problems. But at this point, Whiskers has had enough, so he legs it, or wings it. He wings it away. And it's all heating up, and we're getting lots and lots of nice established law, established setting. We've got our villains re-established. We've got Coram's motivation is clearly established. It's good stuff. Chapter three. Time for more sartorial elegance. We're three chapters in, so obviously Mocock needs to talk about people's clothes. <laughs> and I'm happy that he does, because I love it. But this is where he spends like a page and a half on one joke. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was a still, warm afternoon in high summer, and a few wisps of white cloud lay close to the horizon. Bright, gentle blossoms stretched across the sward for as far as the eye could see, growing right down to where the yellow sand divided the land from the flat, calm ocean. All the flowers were wild, but their profusion and variety gave the impression that they had once been planted as part of a vast garden, which had been left untended for many years. That's a great line. I love that. Just recently, a small trim schooner had beached on the sand and out of it had emerged a bright company leading horses down makeshift gangplanks. Silks and steel flashed in the sunlight as the whole complement abandoned the craft, mounted its steeds and began to move inland. The four leading riders reached the sward and their horses moved knee-deep through the wild tulips as soft and richly coloured as velvet. The riders took deep breaths of the marvellously scented air. All save one of the riders were armoured. One, tall and strange-featured, wore a jewelled patch over his right eye, and a six-fingered jewelled gauntlet upon his left hand. He had a high conical helm, apparently of silver, with an aventail of tiny silver links suspended from staples around the lower edges of the helm. His burney was also of silver, although its second layer was of brass, and his shirt, breeks and boots were of soft brushed leather. He had a long sword at his side, its pommel and guard decorated with delicate silver work, as well as red and black onyx. In a saddle sheaf was a long-hafted war-axe with decorations matching those on the sword. On his back was a coat of a peculiar texture and of brilliant scarlet, and on this were crossed a quiver of arrows and a long bow. This was Corum, Galen, Ersi in the scarlet robe, caparisoned for war. Next to Prince Corum rode one who also wore mail, though with an elaborate helm fashioned from the shell of the giant Murex, and with a shield which was also made from shell. A slender sword and a lance were the weapons of this rider, and she was the beautiful Margravine Relina of Alamglil, caparisoned for war. So a quick note there, that's about a third of the size paragraph that Corum gets in describing his gear, so unlucky, Relina. Well, it is his book. At Relina's side rode a handsome young man with a helm and shield that matched hers, a tall lance and a short-hafted war-axe, a sword and a long, broad-blade base lad. What's a base lad? His long cloak was of orange samite and matched the sleek coat of his chestnut mare, whose jewelled harness was probably worth more than the rider's own gear. And this was Beldan Han Alamglil, caparisoned for war. The fourth rider wore a broad-brimmed hat, which was somewhat fastidiously tilted on his head, and which now sported a long plume. His shirt was of bright blue silk, and his pantaloons rivalled the scarlet of Coram's cloak. There was a broad yellow sash about his waist, with a well-worn leather sword belt supporting a sabre and a poignard. His boots reached to the knee, and his long dark blue cloak was so long that it stretched out to cover the whole of his horse's rump. A small black and white cat was perched upon his shoulders, its wings folded. It was purring, and seemed to be an animal of singularly pleasant disposition. The rider occasionally reached up to stroke its head and murmur to it, and this was the sometime traveller, sometime poet, sometime companion to champions, Jerry O'Connell, and he was not, seriously, comparison for war. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. He's having fun with this, isn't he? Because he's yeah. telling you stuff you already know, but yeah. he's... he's just enjoying himself yeah it's it's fantastic so they've got all their gang with them they've got all the men at arms so you're an artist when you read stuff like that as an artist does that make your creative juices flow does that make you want to create a massive freeze of these four heroes 
Or does it, or is that not the type of stuff that turns you on? It, I mean, that makes me want to become a costume designer. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I, what you could do with with some of these descriptions. And I think um, what clothes people wear in fantasy books and in sci-fi is really important because mm. you don't spend huge amounts of time on character. And oftentimes it is the costume that tells you about the character. Mm. And I remember um, like combing through these books when I was in my teens and I was painting Citadel miniatures uh, and to get the exact colours yeah. of what these characters would be wearing. You know, I did it, you know, I had, I had um, Citadel, uh, the box set of the Eternal Champion figures. And I had loads of like their licensed Lord of the Rings characters I poured through uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolute. And, and it was imperative for me to get the exact right colours uh, of the clothes that they were wearing. But it's, yeah. it is... It is important, and I, and I think um, it's a little bit. What I was saying about um, Minola's work on this comic, I don't think he's quite as inspired in this one because the the clothes and the the accessories just aren't quite as elaborate and um, no, elegant as in the yeah. in uh, the Knight of the Swords. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, still genius artist. But um, yeah, I mean, maybe when I retire, I'll I'll create a big freeze of. Uh, various uh, eternal champion characters well you know just for everybody's knowledge i think i might have mentioned this before our first ever interaction resulted in you doing me a very very attractive illustration of three of the champions jerry O'Connell included yeah so uh, you you definitely have the chops for it he's always been one of my favorites just because of the attitude and and you know just wearing you know the sort of stylish this you know the kind of ridiculous of having having the hat at the, the right angle and in the yeah. right way, you know. There's loads of little lovely little details in that description as well. And one of my favourite, weirdly, I don't know why, but it just it, it provides another nice little level of visual flair to the whole scene. It's just that simple description of his blue cloak being so long it covers this horse's rump. Yeah. And it's just such a throwaway detail that makes that still makes it so much more visual. And satisfying, yeah, mm. I love it. But it's it's an interesting chapter this one because I think this, as much as any other by Moorcock, possibly more than any other, must have been a massive influence on Warhammer, on on the old world aspect mm. of Warhammer, because the travel through villages, and after coming across a massive gammon of a chaos priest, who's trying to rabble rouse the villagers the first village to come across, who ends up looking like a bit of an idiot and falling over on his ass in a, in a trough of water. As they head through the different villages towards the city of the local duke, each village that passes more time than the last, and there's, a, there's basically a conflict going on between, and it says it in this, in this language, priests of law and priests of chaos. And I think this is the first time we've had it so on the nose in uh, a Moorcock story. Obviously in the Elric stories, the law and chaos stuff is all implicit. But this is essentially travelling through villages and you've got the equivalent of the massive Daily Mail local gammon councillor in the form of a a chaos priest rabble-rousing and trying to wind up the village and saying, look, look, he's not even human, and and trying to, you know, get them to reject these these travellers. And... The first village they come to, they're not really having it, and they kind of laugh this priest off. But Coram makes the observation that this is slightly worrying, and Jerry adds a, a a thing that says these things often are comedic, 
even though they are disturbing. There is a certain comedy in how ridiculous these people can be. And that is just so true and identifiable, isn't it? You only have to watch a clip of GB News and see the fucking rank black comedy value of it all, while even whilst it's making your shit itch, frankly. Yeah. But when they finally get to the Duke City, it's blown over into full-on conflict. And this is the bit where Coram is kind of reluctant to engage to a degree. It says, and now the company galloped where before it had trotted, riding across the duchy of Bedwaril Nan Ruim, that's a fucking pronunciation challenge, <laughs> as if the warriors of Lear Abroad were already pursuing them. And there was tension in the air. In every village they passed through, there was apparently meaningless disputes between neighbours on one side, as one side supported Erlay and the other Isla. God, it's like, it's like going to a family gathering. <laughs> But both refused to listen to what Coram told them, that the instruments of chaos would soon be upon their land and they would cease to exist unless they prepared to resist King Lear and his armies. And when they came at last to Larakan Fall, their family was fighting in the streets. Very few of the cities of Luanesh were walled, and Larak was no exception. She had long, low houses of stone and carved timber, all brightly painted. The house of the Duke of Bedwilrow was not immediately evident, for it was little different from the other larger houses in the city, but Relina pointed it out. The fighting was quite close to the Duke's resident, and near it a building was burning. The company of Alonglil began to ride down towards the city, leaving the women in the hills. It seems that some of these chaos priests were more persuasive than Veronak, Prince Coram shouted to Relina as she prepared a spear. They galloped into the outskirts of the town. The streets were empty and silent. From the centre came a great noise of battle. You are best leaders, he said to her, for you'll know who are the Duke's men and who are not. She increased her speed without a word, and they followed her into the middle of Larakan Fall. There they were, men in blue livery with helmets and shields similar to those borne by Relina's men, were fighting a mixed force of peasants and what were evidently professional soldiers. The men in blue are the Dukes, she called. Those in brown and purple are the city guard. There was always, I gather, a certain rivalry between the two. Coram felt reluctance to engage them, not because he was afraid, but because he bore no malice towards them. The peasants, in particular, hardly knew why they fought, and doubtless the city guard was barely conscious of the fact that chaos was working through them to create conflict. They had been filled with a vague sense of unrest, and, with the pushing of the priests of Erle, had resorted to anger and to arms. But Relina was already leading the horsemen through in a lance charge, the spears dipped and the cavalry drove into the mass of men, cutting a wide path through their ranks. Most of the enemy was unmounted, and Coram's axe flew up and down as he chopped at the heads of those who, still with astonishment on their faces, sought to stop his advance. His horse reared and whinnied, and its hooves flailed, and at least a dozen peasants and guards had died before they joined with the duke's men, and had turned to drive back the way they had come. Already, to Coram's relief, many of the peasants had dropped their weapons and were running. The few guards fought on and now Coram could see armed priests fighting with him. A small man, almost a dwarf, on a big yellow charger, a massive broadsword in his left hand, was shouting encouragement to the newcomers. By his dress, Coram decided that this must be the duke himself. "'Lay down your arms!' the small man yelled to the guards. "'You will have mercy! You will be spared!' Coram saw a guard look about him and then drop his sword. Instantly the man was cut down by the chaos priest nearest to him. "'Fight to the death!' screamed the priest. If you betray chaos now, your souls will suffer more than your bodies could. 
but the surviving guards had played and lost heart, and one of them turned with resentment on the priest who had slain his comrade. His sword slashed at the man who went down, trying to staunch the blood that suddenly erupted from his severed jugular. That could be a scene from the old Empire in in a, a Warhammer game, a Warhammer novel. It's it's so just something as simple as that and as simple as this chapter is, is I think has been so influential on British grim dark fantasy and how we view it. And it's not it's not full of it's not the chapters with all of the philosophy about the multiverse. It's not anything about a massive battle for the end of the world. It's just them riding into a town and coming across a fight between two different factions. Yet yeah, that the, the the tone of it and the context of it have been so influential, and it's great. I I want I want to play this as a game. You know, really. you don't you don't often get a lot of stuff about the ordinary people. No. in these books, do you? And no. it, it's it says uh, about um, I think the first village they come to that they hadn't even had that much to do with the priest. You know, mm. he just offered them a bit of advice and you get the impression right. that these people haven't been at each other's throats, yeah. but it's just in recent times, just stuff has started to happen, you know? Yeah, it's like that That guy just used to turn up occasionally and sell them stuff mm. and they just thought he was an oddball. And then all of a sudden you get this situation where this oddball, suddenly his words have traction. Or some of these oddballs, their words have traction and these oddballs become powerful. And this this is how it works, isn't it? This yeah. is how it happens. Just look yeah, at your local. They think he's funny. They think yeah. he's just harmless. Getting a little bit political there, but I don't think anybody who's listening to this would probably mistake us for anything other I than a, a left leaning, <laughs> a left leaning podcast. Oh dear. Yeah, I'm 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 struggling not to name the person who is in my head, but like, yeah. you, you know, what I mean, a ridiculous person who has yeah. become, you know, yeah. powerful. Let the listeners decide. (laughs) The fight's over. The Duke's grateful. And after a feed and on some musing on the conflict between law and chaos, which the Duke takes really super seriously, and actually, to some degree at least, seems capable, we find that after the set-out for the capital and the seat of the king, Arnald, that the Duke might be one of few who is in that situation. Because... We get a really lovely description in Chapter 4 of the arrival at the city. And again, I'm not going to read too much more, but I am going to read this bit just because I love it so much. It's um, they, they arrive at this city, and again, it's just this absolutely delightful world-building, essentially. So I probably use world-building too often and probably use it wrongly. But in my mind, I like this stuff, and this is what it seems like to me. Halwignanvek was an old city of spires and pale stones. From all directions across the plain came white roads leading to Halwig. Along these roads travelled merchants and soldiers, peasants and priests, as well as the players and musicians in which Leo Manesh was so rich. Down the Great East Way galloped Coram and Relina and Jerry, their armour and the clothes covered in dust, their eyes heavy with weariness. Halwig was a walled city, but the walls seemed more decorative than functional. Their stonework carved with fanciful motifs, mythical beasts, and complicating scenes of the city's past glories. None of the gates were closed as they came near, and there were only a few sleepy guards who did not bother to hail them when they passed through and found themselves in streets filled with flowers. Every building had a garden surrounding it, and every window had boxes in which more plants grew. 
The city was filled with a rich sense of the flowers, and it seemed to Coram, remembering the plain of blossoms, that the main business of these people seemed to lie in the nurturing of lovely growing things. And when they came to the palace of the king, they saw that every tower and battlement, every wall, was covered in vines and flowers, so that it seemed from a distance to be a castle built entirely off flowers. Even Coram smiled with pleasure when he saw it. Again, it's stuff that I absolutely love. Mocock's great at doing really weird psychedelic stuff. He's also great at just writing really simply fantastic descriptions that you can almost smell. When it comes to like the more traditional trappings of fantasy, he's definitely the equal of any of the other great fantasy writers when it comes to just summoning up a vision of something like that. It's wonderful. Simple and stuff. And again, it's like this. It's like the clothes. You know, you don't need to go into the history of the city. You just yeah. have that description of all the flowers and all the beauty of it, and you just know. You just know the kind of people that have lived there. Yeah, we know when we're reading this stuff. After how grim the stuff in chapter two was that Whiskers observed, that it's going to go really ill for these people. So this description becomes, in many ways, more tragic because you know what's likely to befall them. It's really effective. It's really effective. And sadly, King Arnold seems like a nice young fella, but he's in no way, shape or form, a fighter. And he acknowledges that his people aren't either. And he's quite downbeat about the whole situation. We learn that the Mabden of the East are already reaving and murdering on the coast. And they've taken and slaughtered about seven coastal towns. But they're called to the Temple of Law. And, well, there's only Lord Arkin. And sadly, in a way, we haven't got to book two yet, we'll do that next time, it's time to engage quest mode. And we said this when we did book one of Sword of the Dawn. I so enjoy this stuff. I so enjoy the texture and the flavour of the build and establishing the stakes that once we get to quest mode, because Arkin tells them they have to travel to the city of the Pyramid, in the realm of Queen's Ironbag, the only city that still resists her, and ask for aid. He doesn't really give them any more information of that. He doesn't really tell them who they're going to ask for aid from. And when they say, how do we get back? He says, oh, well, you'll figure it out. <laughs> you'll figure it out. And I can't remember his exact words, but he says something along the lines of, well, if you survive, I'm sure you'll find your way back. Mm. And he opens a portal, and boom, off the go, time bandit style. They all jump through the portal, not before Jerry has had an exchange with Arkin, a slightly arch exchange, which is quite amusing. But off the go. And book two will be psychedelic quests in the realm of Queen Zionberg, which we've got to look forward to. And that's it. Mm. Thoughts on book one? Um, it's, ramp- it's just ramping up. Mm. I, yeah, I I think, um, yeah, I, everything you've said about like the world building, um, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. It's, there's some fantastic writing in there it, and it does feel a little bit clunky to get to the end just come to a guy who knows some shit and he's just going to say go here do this and do this yeah. it's like you you could have laid that in but i think i think Moorcock has been enjoying the journey and he's been enjoying kind of creating a, this this sort of tapestry that like when it gets to the plot okay well here's the plot you know you you, you could have laid it through but that's that's his is i think you can see where his heart was, yeah. You know, in those descriptions of places, and but you, what you're saying about the 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 people and the kind of chaos priests and stuff—that's I don't think that really hit me when I was first reading. It, but it's mm. like, 
you know, Hitler was thought to be a kind of amusing character when he first came onto the world stage. And, you know, it's it's that same sort of thing. It's like yeah. throughout history. That funny little man. People didn't take him seriously because he was a, 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 a not charismatic, but a, the people who perhaps had... The people in the know just thought it was a weird, an, odd, an oddity, you know, but he appealed to a base, you know, and this, and this is why these people end up being... Well, these people end up hijacking countries, don't they? <laughs> That's what found to it, our cost. It, it's sort of easy to say that Arioch is evil. Yeah. You know, because he, 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 we know he is, he's capricious, he, mm. he just does does what he wants, he, mm. he just wants to cause chaos. But then when you've got people like um, Glandis, mm. you're seeing this absolute hatred, this absolute fear, this absolute, you know, refusal to understand other people's, you know, that's that's humanity. You know, Ar- Arioch isn't really a reflection of humanity, but Glandis no. is, and, you know, his king... The, the, the lords of law and the lords of chaos are the people who bankroll the arseholes to, not necessarily to do their bidding, but the bankroll the arseholes because the, the effect of what the arseholes do will in some way work for their agenda. And their agenda isn't a human agenda, but the human agenda, if, if the right people a, appeal to them, suits them. So yeah, and it's, it's and one of the things that I think we've discussed before on the podcast, but which is uh, something that develops further on, is the idea that law is good, chaos is evil. And later on down the line, you know, there there are arguments to say, well, actually, Grand Bretagne is more lawful than chaotic because they're operating to a very very specific plan, um, and they're trying to impose a form of order on tragic millennium Europe, yeah, it's, it's all it's all there for argument. But this is definitely in the space of law, Lord Arkin, whilst not appearing good, in inverted commas, is the virtuous one who wants to help them survive, even though actually it's because they want to turf out Zion Bag and Mabalod as well. But Zion Bag and Mabalod and, and Ariok's appearance at the end of Night of Swords, well, he's not, he's not very nice. <laughs> It's not very pleasant, is he? Uh, uh, at the very least, it's particularly unpleasant. At the very worst, is is absolutely foul. But they don't operate on a human level of motivation, you know. But yeah, all that stuff about the chaos priests and the priests of law, you know, rabble rousing, and we we do get a, a very brief reference to Queen Zionbag's messenger, who is with the Mabden, who were raiding and landing at the coast. So we'll get more of that further down the line, I'm sure. And I am thinking back, it's 25 years since I've read this, but I'm pretty sure I remember who that is. Yeah. Uh, But we'll get to that as we go along. My memories of this book is um, kind of disappointing after the first one. I loved the first one so much uh, that this... I think the next two, they just didn't seem to match up to it. But this time, I, I think I found quite a lot more in it. And uh, yeah, there's some there's some good stuff in there. There's some interesting stuff. Yeah. Here. I think with the, with Knight of the Swords, it's got a bit more of that the Jack Vance sort of sort of whimsical episode to episode, yeah. you know, bumping from one thing to another. I mean, it's it's more more grim than mm. than Jack Vance, but I think Elric is more like Fritz Lieber. Mm-hmm. I think Elric fits into the world of Fafiud and the Grey Mouse, but yeah, there was there's definite elements of like the dying earth, the sort of strange, sort of surreal 
almost sort of whimsical fairy tale stuff yeah, in, uh, I, in, yeah. the, in the Corum books. There's a bit of Lioness in there as well, isn't there? Well, well, I only realise Lumanesh is Leoness, isn't it? Yeah. And, and now every time there's a proper name, I'm thinking, well, what is that? And I'm looking in my big book of Cornish yeah. place names. And I'm like, well, that must be a thing. You know, he can't have made that. That feels like it would fit. Yeah. I, rem- I remember very little of this. It's such a long time since I've read it. As a teenager, I favoured the second trilogy over the first. And as a result, I read the second trilogy probably again in the 90s. I might have read this in the 90s as well. I honestly can't remember. But I don't remember too much of this. So when I'm reading this, it all feels really, really fresh to me. Yeah. But I'm also very aware of the fact from reading the Hartman books with Tash and Dave that the first third of a book is his first 24 hours of writing it. And we're about to head into the fugue state middle section where he's been up for 24 hours, probably speeding his tits off. Throwing, throwing typewriter sheets over his shoulder yeah. to uh, to Mike Harrison or whoever sat behind him, whoever's helping him out. And I'm, I'm prepared for it to go a little bit shaky, but we'll see. The, the bit where the dungeon master doesn't have everything quite as prepared. Yeah, before. absolutely. And hell, you know what? I've been there. I've fucked up many <laughs> yeah. games as a dungeon master by not being well prepared or by just being too tired to do it properly. So, But cool. You know what? Thanks ever so much for dropping by Derry and Tom's to look at Queen of the Swords book one, and we will reconvene at some point soon and pick up book two and see where it goes. All right. Can I pod with madness? What we will be doing is looking through vintage Kerrang, Kerrang and Metal Hammer, all from late 80s, late 80s. I remember when someone lent me Somewhere in Time, and by that time I'd heard Marillion and I'd heard Def Leppard, I heard Bon Jovi on the radio, and I thought I knew what heavy metal was. When this started, I thought, I don't know if I can take this. It was so harsh, it was so metal. I thought, this, I think this is going to be too much for me. But I persevered, <laughs> I pushed through. Yeah. And I think if you tell most most Maiden fans would probably think this is quite a soft album because it's got keyboards on it or, right. or synth guitars or something. But yeah, for me, it was a shock to the system. I credit Alice Cooper with introducing me into type of music because when I heard that, it was like, like yeah, two friends over. I was like, listen to you, like, obviously this has blown my mind, so it's going to blow your mind too, this is going to be amazing. And played it to them, and then they went, ugh, do you like heavy metal? And I was like, mortified. And um, I've never forgotten that, because she'd been like, yes, I fucking like heavy metal, kicked over the tape and walked out of my own room. Massive thanks to Simon for returning to Derry and Tom's to talk Coram. And we'll be back with part two very soon. Don't forget that Simon's podcast is Can I Pod With Madness? And you can find it on all good podcatchers and on YouTube. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the sixth instalment of our explorations around Mocock in RPGs. But in the meantime, thanks to DJ Cthulhu for finding us on YouTube and for all the comments. And also Stan Kirby and Ian Williams over on Instagram for the messages. Keep it up. We love to read them. So if you're out there and listening, join the conversations. We love this community, and it's really heartening.
Also, congratulations to Smeorgan Baldhead for winning the Bob Herbifield Art Draw. For those that didn't win, or know about the draw, the Bob Herbifield account on Instagram, run by his son, who of course has been on this podcast, is the best place to keep updated on the pending A4 prints of some of our favourite Herbifield Mayflower covers that will be available for purchase. They look incredible. And naturally, thanks as always to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Picanti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster, and Sebastian Weetabix, and our chaos engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Lee Gary, Malpertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Menyon, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo. And of course, thanks to our crafty Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Mark Hebden, Graham Holden, and Ray Otis. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Andy Darby, Clarky the Cruel, David Lee, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Imria, Janie Stim, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Jason Vogel, Liam Jay, Miles Reed Lobato, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, Tom Murphy, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last, but never least, Robert McMillan. Okay, enough yakking. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruinsoutlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. BITR Breakfast in the Ruins Radio is live again on Radio Garden or via the web player at breakfastintheruinsradio.blogspot.com. We have our Patreon page too. There are a few extra odds and sods on there. But for now, take care. Stay safe. We will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.